Book One, Chapter Eight of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book One, The Boy Poet, eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two. Chapter Eight, Sir Roger Newdigate's Prize, eighteen thirty seven to eighteen thirty nine. Recording by Shyan Arrowsmith. Of all the prizes which Oxford could bestow, the Newdigate used to be the most popular. Its fortunate winner was an admitted poet in an age when poetry was read, and he appeared in his glory at commemoration. Speaking what the ladies could understand and admire, the honor was attainable without skill in Greek particles or in logarithms, and yet it had a real value to an intending preacher. For the successful reciter might be felt to have put his foot on the pulpit stairs. John Ruskin was definitely meant for the church, and he went to Oxford in the vowed hope of getting the Newdigate. If nothing else, his last talk with Mister Dow was chiefly about ways and means to this end. And before he went up, he had begun the Gypsies for March eighteen thirty-seven. The prize was won that year by Arthur Penring Stanley, afterwards Dean of Westminster. Our candidate and his old schoolfellow Henry Dart of Exeter College set to work on the next subject. The Exile of Saint Helena, and after the long vacation, read their work to each other, accepting the hints and the corrections of a friendly rivalry. Meantime, his old nurse Anne—it is trivial, but a touch of nature—being at Oxford in attendance on the ladies and keen as she always was for Master John's success, heard from the keeper of the reading room of criticisms on his published verses. She brought the news to his delighted mother. He was pleased, she writes, but says that he forms his own estimate of his poems and reviews don't alter it. But how my father will be delighted! How he will crow! Which historiette repeated itself many a time in the family annuals. In Lent term eighteen thirty-eight, he was hard at work on the new poem. He wrote. I must give an immense time every day to the Newdigate, which I must have if study will get it. I have much to revise. You find many faults, but there are hundreds which have escaped your notice, and many lines must go out altogether which you and I should wish to stay in. The thing must be remodelled, and I must finish it while it has a freshness on it. Otherwise, it will not be written well. The old lines are hackneyed in my ears, even as a very soft olean plum, which your Jewess has wiped and rewiped with the corner of her apron till its polish is perfect and its temperature elevated. In this march, he got through his smalls. Nice thing to get over. Quite a joke, as everybody says when they've got through with the feathers on. It's a kind of emancipation from freshness, 
a thing unpleasant in an egg but dignified in an oxonian very low very kind canaston ditto nice fellows urbane how they do frighten people there was one man all but crying with mere fear canaston had to coax him like a child poor fellow he had some reason to be afraid did his logic shockingly people always take up logic because they fancy it doesn't require a good memory and there is nothing half so productive of pluck they never know it it was very cool when i got into it found the degree of excitement agreeable nibbled the end of my pen and grinned at kinaston over the table as if i had been going to pluck him they always smile when they mean pluck the new decade for eighteen thirty eight for all his care and pains was won by dart he was at any rate beaten by a friend and with a poem which his own honourable sympathy and assistance had helped to perfect another trifling incident lets us get a glimpse of the family life of young poet the queen's coronation in june eighteen thirty eight was a great event to all the world and mr ruskin was anxious for his son to see it much correspondence ensued between the parents arranging everything for him as they always did which of the available tickets should be accepted and whether he could stand the fatigue of the long waiting and so forth mrs ruskin did not like the notion of her boy sitting perched on rickety scaffolding at dizzy altitudes in the abbey mr ruskin evidently determined to carry his point went to westminster bribed the carpenters climbed the structure and reported all safe to stand a sentry though said he the gold and scarlet of the decorations appeared very paltry compared with the wengenaup but he could not find a number four forty seven and wrote to the harold's office to know if it was a place from which a good view could be got blumenthal replied that it was a very good place and lord brownlow had just taken tickets for his sons close by then there was the great question of dress he went to owen's and ordered a white satin waistcoat with gold sprigs and a high dress coat with bright buttons and asked his wife to see about white gloves at the oxford a court white neckcloth or a black satin would do picture then the young rusking in those dressy days a portrait was once sent to brantwood of a dandy in a green coat of wonderful cut supposed to represent him in his youth but suggesting lord lytton's pelham rather than the homespun suited seer of coniston did you ever wear a coat like that i asked i'm not so sure that i didn't said he after that they went to scotland and the north of england for the summer and more fine sketches were made some of which hung now in his drawing-room and compare not unfavourably with the prouds beside them in firmness of line and fullness of insight they are masterly and mark a rapid progress all the more astonishing 
when it is recollected how little time could have been spared for practice. The subjects are chiefly architectural, castles and churches, and Gothic details, and one is not surprised to find him soon concerned with the Oxford Society for promoting the study of Gothic architecture. They were all reverent, says a letter of the time, and wanted somebody to rouse them. Science, too, progressed this year. We read of geological excursions to Shotover with Lord Carew and Lord Kildare, one carrying the hammer and another the umbrella, and actual discoveries of Surian remains, and many a merry meeting at Dr. Buckland's, in which, at intervals of scientific talk, John romped with the youngsters of the family. After a while, the dean took the opportunity of a walk through Oxford to the Clarendon to warn him not to spare too much time on science. It did not pay in the school nor in the church, and he had too many irons in the fire. Drawing and science and prose essays mentioned in the last chapter, and poetry, all these were his by-play. Of the poetry, the Newdigate was but a little part. In Friendship's Offering this autumn, he published Remembrance, one of many poems to Adele, Christ's Church, and the Scythian Grave. In this last, he gave free rein to the morbid imaginations to which his unhappy affair, the Coeur, and the mental excitement of the period predisposed him. Harrison, his literary mentor, approved these poems and inserted them in Friendship's Offering, along with love songs and other exercises in verse. One had a great success and was freely copied, the sincerest flattery, and the preface to the annual for 1840 publicly thanked the gifted writer for his valuable aid. At the beginning of 1839, he went into new rooms vacated by Mr. Moo and set to work finally on Salset and El Fonta. He ransacked all sources of information, coached himself in Eastern scenery and mythology, threw in the Aristotelian ingredients of terror and pity, and wound up with an appeal to the orthodoxy of the examiners of whom Kibo was the chief, by prophesying the prompt extermination of Brahmanism under the teaching of the missionaries. This further try won the prize. Kibo sent for him to make the usual emendations before the great work could be given to the world with the seal of Oxford upon it. John Ruskin seems to have been somewhat refractory under Kibo's hands, though he would let his fellow students or his father or Harrison work their will on his manuscripts or proofs, being always easier to lead than to drive. Somehow, he came to terms with the professor, and then the dean, taking an unexpected interest, was at pains to see that his printed copy was flawless and to coach him for the recitation of it at the great day in the Sheldonian, June the 12th, 1839. And now that friends and strangers, publishers in London and professors in Oxford concurred in their applause, it surely seemed that 
He had found his vocation and was well on the high road to fame as a poet. End of book one, chapter eight. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.